Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Prometheus Podcast, where we discuss all things macro, markets, and investing. I'm your host, Ahan, and I'm the founder of Prometheus Research. This is the fifth episode in a series of many podcasts to come, where we bring you thoughtful, insightful, and actionable conversations. Today, we have on another exceptional guest for you, Bob Elliott. Bob is co-founder and CEO of Unlimited, a company which uses machine learning to replicate hedge fund strategies in a low-cost ETF format. Prior to starting Unlimited, Bob spent over a decade at Bridgewater Associates, which is one of the largest and most successful macro hedge funds ever. Bob brings a rich mixture of economic analysis, portfolio construction, and systematic thinking to the table. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Bob's also recently taken a Twitter, where he's fairly active and always insightful. So I highly recommend you give him a follow. Bob, such a pleasure to have you on. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I uh... And as, I, as you say, I'm, I'm new to the Twitter world, but uh, sort of getting my feet wet. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we uh, got to talking because I was reading uh, a fair amount of what you've put out there and really enjoying it on a, on a regular basis. Thank you. And likewise, it's, uh, it's been great to see you know, the Twitter community get more and more sophisticated over the years. Um, so, Bob, let's jump right into it. Um, why don't you kick us off by starting the discussion with outlining your framework for macro? I know you were an important part of developing Bridgewater's way of thinking, both on the economy and markets. Why don't we start there, maybe with the economy, and then we can move over to markets? For sure, for sure. I mean, I think when you think about how economies or markets work, you, you have to start with something as simple as recognizing that all an economy is, is a series of transactions. There are people who are the buyers and they can either pay with cash money that they have, or they can pay with credit. And then you have the sellers who, you know, either create the good or the service that they're selling or the financial assets that they're selling. And that at the core is how every piece of the macro economy works. And so then you can think given that framework, which is a relatively simple framework, right? You can think about what are the motivations of the people who are on the side of the buying, uh, motivations, constraints, sources of capital, et cetera. And then on the selling side, you can think about the same thing, their motivations, their constraints. And basically all we see, and this is particularly important today, all you see in terms of prices is just the money and credit that's coming from one side against the supply of whatever the good or service or financial asset is on the other side. And that's what determines the price. And so that really is at the core of how I think about any particular market or economic transaction. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a basic and intuitive template, but it, it it's highly applicable, like you said, to today. Now, before we really kind of get into, you know, the various parties and how they interact, I think that it's important to get a sense of, you know, long-term trajectories and what are the drivers, right? And I think that there are certain elements that lend themselves better to understanding, you know, the real or, you know, the the capacity of the economy, the real productive capacity of the economy. Can you touch on that a little bit before we get into the, the transaction side and the monetary side? For sure, for sure. And so, you know, when you think about, so that's sort of the context of all the all the little bits that are building up to an economy or to a financial market, as you sort of zoom out from that, what you see is that there's basically three things that drive uh, 
the economy and the markets over time, three big forces over time. And those are the force of uh, population and productivity, sort of think about those as a combined uh, force. And that is sort of sets the baseline for the economy to grow over time. You have long-term debt cycles uh, that, that basically transition the economy from either a long-term, meaning like 75 years or so of accumulating debt through cycles versus decumulating debt. And then you have what people are very familiar with, which is the, the sort of typical business cycle, which at each point in time, an economy or a set of financial markets will be affected by the undulations of that uh, particular uh, point in the business cycle. And so when you think about where you are in a particular point in time, I often like to think about oh, where are we in each one of those different elements? And then that really helps set the stage for what is likely to transpire. So I, I think that the the productivity and population elements are fairly intuitive, right? And an individual can think about their own productivity. And I, I think that it's important to recognize that the the inherent, you know, kind of like the intrinsic productivity is very different from what you get from the BLS, right? Like the 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 output that they're measuring versus, you know, when we go through a recession, it's not like everyone forgets how to produce things. Um, Correct. So, so I, I think that that's an important distinction to understand that the driver is really the, the productive capacity of the underlying economy. And so that's, I think, fairly linear um, in terms of thinking about. But I think that debt is a little bit more nuanced, right? And I think that the composition of debt also matters. So debt loads typically tend to be a burden on society, right? But, you know, putting it into kind of current context, I think that there is some amount of difference between having high private sector debt and high public sector debt. How do you kind of think about that balance? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the, the, the main thing to think about when you're, when you're thinking about debt is that um, debt is sort of two basic concepts. It is, uh, can be used, sort of going back to that original framework, it can be used to do spending or investment or the purchase of financial assets today. And so it has to the extent that you incrementally borrow, it allows you to incrementally spend more. And so it has an effect on the economy today. But it is also a claim on future income uh, because eventually that debt will come due, you will have to service that debt, and so there's a natural transition of essentially borrowing today and supporting growth and in incomes today against thinking about what is likely to transpire in the future, which is a drag. And that really is, when you think about it, kind of how the, how the, why you can have these sort of longer term debt cycles, whether it's an individual or whether it's a sector, a sector of the economy or whether it's an economy as a whole, is because there's these natural waves of wanting to borrow to buy today, eventually you borrow to buy so much that you are unlikely to pay it off into the future. And that causes the lenders to start to slow the lending to you. And eventually uh, it rolls over, the long-term debt cycle rolls over like we saw in the US in the sort of 2008 context. And so um, in that context, you know, ideally what you do is you'd go down and look at every individual and see what their debt capacity is or every company and see what their debt capacity is because that's really where that decision is being made is at that individual level. In a lot of ways, you know, whether it's the private, when you think about the household sector or the 
or the corporate sector, et cetera. That's really how you want to think about it in terms of thinking about the debt capacity and you know, the likelihood to borrow today versus in the future. Government debt is kind of a different, uh, kind of a totally different sort of thing because really what all government debt is, is a, at one level is just a trade-off between the economy-wide spending today versus a drag in the future. And so that's something that is essentially, I mean, it's both a, a literal tax on the rest of the economy, uh, but it is also a, a figurative tax in the sense of at some point, there will need to be a paying back of that government debt. The thing that's a bit different about government debt than what you might see in a particular private sector individual is that uh, governments, particularly governments based on fiat structures, have a lot of flexibility to deal with that government debt in many ways. And so you know, they can always tax, and that is always a way to, to deal with it or cut spending relative to incomes. That's always a way to help pay back the debt, but they have in the fiat context, a very critical lever that they can pull, which is that they can use printed money to retire the debt. And it doesn't have the same effect that raising taxes or cutting spending does on incrementally paying back debt. And that is a critical lever that you almost always see used on the backside of a debt cycle, like we're seeing right now. Um, but it is one that needs to be used quite prudently because it can easily be overdone and lead to inflationary cycles. I, I think you've, you've made an excellent point here. And, you know, tell me if I'm thinking about this right. You, when, when you don't accept the drag on activity, when you have very large, you know, public sector debt, the only way to kind of manage that mismatch is to have an indirect tax via inflation. Right? Does That's that right. Sense? That's right. That's typically how it works is that you get some sort of indirect effect on the economy. Although you can, inflation is not necessarily the outcome on net, particularly if what you're seeing is deflationary forces in other environments. So for instance, Japan has, you know, the BOJ has essentially monetized a huge volume of Japanese government debt to essentially no net effect because of the fact that there were other deflationary forces in play in the economy. And so it's true, like the monetization on an incremental basis is inflationary, incrementally inflationary, but you may not actually feel, or the, or the, the, the man on the street may not quite feel the same effect depending on exactly when the monetization happens, uh, if that makes sense. Right. And, and that kind of goes to going and assessing each of the individual parties and to see what this debt monetization is actually fueling, right? So if we look at Japan's monetization of debt, it was much more, you know, very kind of like what we had in the, you know, 2010s kind of period where we had most of it limited to financial excesses. But when you're talking about a monetization that fueled what happened in the post-COVID recovery, where you fueled incomes in the real economy, you, you have a much more you have a set of conditions that are much more conducive to a high inflation output. So I think that, you know, that kind of marries these two things of, yeah, we need to understand these long-term drivers, but at the same time, we need to understand the balance between various parties and how that's kind of going to transpire. Excellent. Absolutely. The, the, I mean, I, I, the most interesting part of the, of the post of the pre COVID versus the post COVID dynamic was this shift from 
the Fed primarily using asset prices to help repair balance sheets to then lead to improved demand. And you know, if you think about it, stocks went up 200% in order to get like okay growth, <laughs> not great growth, just okay growth. You needed stocks to go up 200%. And then what happened was a much more significant fiscal impulse, initially offsetting a massive fiscal, a massive deflationary force from COVID. So you didn't get much initially, the two things were offsetting each other. But once the COVID downward pressure started to moderate and you had continued fiscal stimulation financed by monetary uh, stimulation, monetary like QE purchases, you got a perfect recipe for essentially that transfer to much more directly from the government, from the, the money printing by the Fed to the government bonds, which then went into the hands of people, particularly in the lower income brackets who were more, had higher propensity to spend, to then the spending that we're now seeing driving prices higher and with it that inflation, that much more typical inflationary cycle that you see uh, today than you know the first sort of real inflationary cycle you've seen in about 50 years. Yeah, and I really do want to get into kind of the mechanisms on inflation, but I, I would like to highlight before we get into that, that um, I think that the, the the distributional effect is really important, right? So if you're talking about kind of the monetization that was happening, you know, pre-COVID, that that was going into equity markets and that was creating kind of equity market inflation. But the thing is that the distribution of ownership of equities in the country is unequal. So as a result, you won't see the same pressures on spending and things like that because the gains were concentrated on only one set of assets. Now, when you go out and you do stimulus checks, you create a much more broad-based and, you know, let's call it equal effect across the economy. And that's what really kind of creates the inflation because now it's evenly distributed. So the price level that everyone focuses on is, is much more under impact. And I think this, this question, um, this kind of takes me to how, so we have this template for growth, right? We have this template, this long-term template where we have productivity, we have debt levels and we have population growth, right? Um, is there a similar template for thinking about inflation so my guess my question is, is inflation a structural feature or is it something that happens cyclically or is there somewhere in between? It's an interesting question. And I feel like so many people sort of ignored <laughs> how to think about inflation for, frankly, for decades because it was like inflation's low, it's stable, and that's all you need to know about. It's not something to concern yourself with. <clears throat> and I think part of what... Um, I spent some some time doing years ago was really getting under the hood and really understanding the, the the low inflation dynamic. And what you saw when you sort of peeled back the onion is that there were actually a lot, a number of very significant dynamics that were basically big offsetting dynamics that drove what what came out to be something that ended up being relatively perfectly balanced. And it's some of the shifts in those structural dynamics that I think set the stage for then a typical inflationary business cycle, inflationary expansion of a business cycle. And so, you know, the biggest, the clearest example of that is starting in the late 90s and early 2000s was the significant shift to globalization, 
China entering the WTO, the shift in production, productive capacity, the move of hundreds of millions of people from lower productivity activities to increasingly higher productivity activities, essentially a massive expansion of the global labor force that was used to create a pretty incredible deflation in transportable goods uh, that were primarily produced in China, but increasingly in the rest of Southeast Asia. And that that, um, that, that force created, that was hundreds of basis points drag on inflation in the goods sector that ended up being somewhat offset or financing uh, an expansion in services inflation in the US. And so you see things like healthcare, acad you know, academic expenses, things like that, that are running much, much faster, that are growing much, much faster than aggregate CPI. And the only reason why that could happen is because you had such a disinflationary force from China hitting the global economy. And so that dynamic, even before the last couple of years had started to slow down uh, in the sense of the vast majority of people in lower productivity um, jobs in China and elsewhere throughout Asia had primarily had moved to higher productivity jobs. Wage inflation was occurring, exchange rates were starting to rise, certainly in real terms. And what you saw was what was once a big force causing inflation had already started to shift. Uh, force causing deflation had started to shift towards being a bit inflationary even before anything happened. And then the problem is that those other pieces of the economy that kept growing in terms of inflation, it is hard that when you get the, the university costs going up by 10% a year, it is hard to break that cycle to create a big downward shift. And so those continue to rise while the deflationary forces were coming on. And that, that set up, that was like a tinderbox that set up a structural dynamic that was quite, uh, that, was, that was prone to experiencing an inflationary business cycle. And so we then added a couple of sort of dynamics on top of what was already a shift towards a more inflationary circumstance, like the fiscal stimulation post-COVID, like, you know, then subsequently a much more, uh, a much tighter commodity market set of commodity markets influenced by, you know, by, by the world, but also by years and years of, of underinvestment in commodities um, and then exacerbated by the war. And so you got sort of this confluence of factors, almost a perfect confluence of factors that came together to describe why there was an inflationary impulse that was so strong and so quick, frankly, that came after the, the COVID simulation. Right, and this makes sense. So you have, you have this secular downwave for a really long period of time, right? Where you have you know, pressure coming from these globalization forces and technology forces, which don't necessarily, you know, I think that technology is particularly interesting because the CPI statistics don't necessarily always account for the, the improvement in computational ability and things like that. So as a result, you have this drag and you don't really know where it's coming from. So it's hard to sometimes do the math, right? Um, so you see this drag over, over decades alongside things that are happening with a global labor force. And now we, we enter this world where we're, we're having some of these pressures, maybe 
you know, sort of subside and now potentially even reverse when it comes to the global labor force. And we, on top of that, we add trillions and trillions of dollars of, st of stimulus, right, to some of the most, the highest marginal propensity to consume parts of the economy amidst uh, a global commodity shortage, right? And the, I think the, the forward-looking question that's on, on everyone's mind is, you know, okay, is this stuff going to, I mean, I, I have a sense based off the analysis you've given me of your answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, you know, how much abatement can we see once, you know, these, you know, sort of transient commodity shortages, and I don't know how transient they really are, um, kind of go away and how much of, you know, on a forward-looking basis, can we continue to expect these kind of secular pressures to push us towards inflation? It is very hard to break inflation once it starts. Uh, and I think it's important to recognize that inflationary pressures existed well before the fiscal stimulation and well before COVID in the sense of, you know, healthcare and service and healthcare and university and other services inflation had been meaningfully in place for a long time. And so in order to break inflationary pressures, you've got to break what has already been in place for a long time, plus a new set of inflationary pressures that have emerged as a result of the confluence of forces that we've talked about. I think the important thing to recognize through that dynamic that, that, uh, that folks often miss is that the thing that drives inflation is typically the prices leading the wages. That's an important thing to think about because what happens is as prices rise, wages actually typically lag the price rises. And so what ends up happening is the people most affected by the inflationary dynamics are the ones that are typically falling behind the fastest because they are most sensitive to the so-called the basic commodities that exist in the in in to sustain day-to-day -day, uh, life. And so what ends up happening is that they end up falling behind in response to the prices, which then requires a demand for an increase in incomes which then allows them to continue to spend. And that creates a reflexive cycle. And so in order to break the cycle, you have to do two things. You have to break the prices, the front end prices that lead what's going on. And so to some extent that's commodities, but that's all, there's also all sorts of underlying other things that make up that basket of essential goods that people are spending on, many of which are services. So you've got to break the price of those to get that to fall. And then you have to create a circumstance where the employees no longer have as much wage power, wage negotiation power to slow the wage rises. And so those, so you have to have both of those effects in order to start breaking away from this, from the price to wage to price spiral. And right now, when I look at it, what I see is we've gotten somewhere, somewhat along in terms of breaking the front end prices, particularly the most sensitive commodity prices, but we still have a ways to go on services 
because services prices are still rising relatively rapidly. And in a tight labor market, you know, right now we have essentially the tightest labor market that any of us have seen in our lifetimes. We still have the tightest labor market and it has gotten tighter in the last few months. And so you put that together and we have a long way to go before there's been enough of a shift in the core drivers of the inflation, the underlying fundamentals to actually start to get a durable decline in inflation towards the levels that the central bank is, is, uh, is going to be comfortable you know, just to add to that, I, I think, and I'd love your perspective on this. Uh, I think that part of, you know, the breaking of prices, right? Um, the difficulty in it is that, while yes, on, on a certain level, we do target prices as, you know, like when we demand wages or when we demand, you know, revenue and things like that. But I think that on another level, it's also a stickiness in the, um, we are nominal spending targeters, right? As, as actors in the economy, we are all trying to optimize for our nominal spend and our nominal profits, right? So that's what we're really trying to do. And as a result, the stickiness in nominal spending relative to the amount of output that I can actually produce when I have this you know, ongoing inflation, the, the, it's almost essentially like you have nominal spending compounding at a much higher rate than, infl- than than real output. And the gap just keeps widening up until a point where I can't actually even produce an incremental unit of output because my costs are so high. And that kind of pushes. Do you think that this is kind of the trajectory? That's part one. Um, and part two, I think is, I, I think the set of circumstances has brought a resurgence of kind of what I would say are like the classical templates for inflation, right? So, you know, you would think about elevated you know elevated capacity utilization production peaking and you know labor markets tight and things like that so you know maybe you can walk us through also kind of what the classical business cycle template is for understanding inflation in a late cycle i think that that there is a lot of uncertainty for for folks about what actually drives uh, activity let's say business activity and hiring is it through time, through the last 30 years, when we thought about what's going on, nominal and real has been totally interchangeable. Uh, and that's because nominal and real have been interchangeable in the sense of what is actually going on with, uh, with, with activity, with profits, with all of those things. And I think as you, as you rightly point out, there's been a, there, in higher inflationary environments, business owners, employees, they're not necessarily thinking carefully about exactly what their real outcomes are. They're thinking about what nominal profits or sales are being generated and then typically responding to that. And so it's interesting what you see in the dynamic today is that real spending growth has been very modest in the grand scheme of things. It's been pretty slow. Nominal spending growth has been at secular highs. And as a result of that, you're getting hiring that is at secular highs, right? Typically, if you saw that, if you went back 10 or 15 years and you saw this sort of slowdown in real spending, you would have expected to experience some labor market weakness. But for the businesses today, they're, they're not seeing weakness. They don't see, this is not a weak environment for businesses. They have secularly high margins. 
They're experiencing very high nominal income growth. And so they're sitting there saying, well, given I have secular, you know, very, very high margins and very good top line growth, nominal top line growth, why wouldn't I continue to have relatively, uh, relatively strong hiring and labor? Because I want to take advantage of that as much as I can. And so that's, that's what you're seeing. That is the dynamic that is playing out. And that is the dynamic that, that, keep, that will continue to play out until you start to see a more meaningful constraint in spending, which will lead to a meaningful constraint in income, which will lead to the meaningful constraints in labor and wages. To, um, to answer your second question, which is sort of, I, I, I think you're, you're spot on in thinking about how this current environment is in many ways the, the most traditional business cycle environment that you could imagine. Like we've grown up, I can certainly speak from my own experience. Like what I've experienced in terms of business cycle downturns are COVID, the financial crisis and a tech bubble bust. That's what I know as a business cycle. And that is not a normal business cycle. A normal business cycle is that you start to get relatively elevated economic conditions that are that expand, which help drive up employment, which helps drive up wages, which helps drive up spending, which flows back through and is supportive to additional economic expansion. And then over time, you start to run into limits in terms of the labor availability. It starts to create an upward pressure on prices and the central bank comes in and tightens monetary policy in order to help moderate the spending so that the price pressures don't become uh, ingrained. Uh, and, and then the, type, the cycle starts to topple over as spending starts, as asset prices and spending starts to slow. That's like, that is textbook. If, you, if I was teaching the business cycle to a, a course in 1985, that's all we would talk about. We would never talk about anything else. And we'd say, you could see all these cycles back through the 50s and 60s and 70s. And they typically worked out that way. And the only time they didn't work out that way was when the central bank was a little too easy and let inflation become ingrained. And so then they had to tighten a little harder in the late 70s, early 80s. And now we're back to a typical a typical cycle expansion that's going on. And so that's, that's what all the people would know. And it's almost like we've forgotten that that's how a business cycle works in the most classic sense, because we've never experienced it. Right. And this is uh, something I think we share a passion for, which is, you know, being able to look back in history and understand how, you know, the last 20 years maybe have been so anomalous relative to what's happened in the long history and, you know, just to be able to go through those examples and understand how would you trade those various markets. And I think part of that is also why you've seen a very strong resurgence in, you know, macro funds that have that long history in, in their mind, right? You've seen a lot of success coming from this macro volatility and kind of these late cycle dynamics. Um, you know, before we get into markets, which I'm really excited to get into, I think it's very important that we've we've outlined a very good way of thinking about, you know, both the economy and inflation. Now, I think we need to kind of connect the dots for the audience in terms of how do various asset classes respond to these different environments? It, it is important, I think very important for all of us to recognize that what we've learned 
in our experiences and you know some of us a little longer and some of us a little shorter but basically everyone who is trading markets today and investing today has learned the same thing which is that 60 40 is the ideal portfolio that bonds and stocks are negatively correlated and that inflation is low and stable and that is uh not a good representation of the vast, you know, the, the wide range, the range of plausible dynamics that can occur. And if anything is directly misleading to investors about how to protect themselves effectively in a typical inflationary cycle, which in that sort of case, you want to be holding things that are, that perform better in inflationary environments, things like tips, things like gold, things like industrial, uh, uh, commodities, energy, things like that, which are much better performing in an environment where you have rising inflation. They each have their nuances of exactly when they'll outperform versus others. But in general, that's a pretty good portfolio to be holding. And stocks and bonds are a terrible portfolio to be holding in that environment. And so you, know, you guys have a great chart which shows basically what the returns are of assets in the 70s and then what if they have been since. Uh, and I, I, I saw that chart for the first time and I said, every person who is investing today and trading financial markets today needs to take that chart and stare at it and stare at it hard and, and put it into their mind that what they know and what they've experienced is totally different from what's happening today because the way the asset classes are going to work through the business cycle are going to be very different from how they've experienced it over the last, you know, 10, 20, 30, even 40 years. Yeah, I think this is a this is a critical thing that that the asset price returns we've seen, they're not features of the asset class. They're features of the environment or they're features probably of sample selection, right? You've just, you know, you've truncated your sample and started in a secular, you know, bond bull market and that's that's what you know, but there are a whole and you know, especially if you're if you were able to go out and see other countries and understand that you know equity prices don't have to rise ad infinitum, right? Like that's not necessarily a thing. Um, now I think that there are two different things. Clearly, you're not suggesting, yeah, just go buy commodities for the next decade. That's that's probably not what you want to do. Um, I think there is the alpha approaches and the beta approaches, right? And I think maybe you can kind of talk about what a thoughtful beta construction is and um, then we can kind of start getting into alpha and you know the alpha views and things like that. Sure, I think it's important to recognize that in general, asset classes outperform cash. And it basically has to be that way because one of the sort of fundamental tenets of how markets function is that investors give up money today to others who invest that productively in all sorts of different ways and return to them more money than they invested in. And so over time, over, over it doesn't even have to be necessarily even very long periods, over reasonable periods of time, you are going to experience a circumstance where asset classes outperform cash. And so it may feel today like uh, nothing is going up. And that's true, nothing is going up today. <laughs> that's that's a, a very realistic feeling given what we've experienced. 
But I think it's really important for people to understand that that is an uncommon outcome much more than it is the common outcome. And, uh, and so I think it's, it's, it's important to think about uh, as an investor, and frankly, most investors should be thinking mostly about what their strategic asset allocation is, much, much more than they should be thinking about what their tactical position is. Uh, because building and investing in what we call beta, which is you know, collecting risk premiums, making that deal that I just described, giving up money today in exchange for more money tomorrow, that is something that is extremely reliable that investors can believe will occur across countries, across time, in all sorts of different market environments over reasonable periods of time, that will happen. And so focusing on the beta um, is very important. Whereas tactically trading in and out of particular uh, asset classes, you know, I've been doing it for 20 years, it's hard. <laughs> so I would not rely on your ability to do that very effectively for most investors. When we turn to the beta portfolio and you think about how do you construct that portfolio most effectively, what this period has really shown is you want to be prepared for any ma major macroeconomic environment that could exist. And so uh, you guys do a nice job sort of breaking down the probabilities of uh, you know, high inflation versus high growth, low inflation versus low growth, et cetera. The sort of breaking down you know, it's a classic framework at this point. You know, the primary drivers of asset classes are growth and inflation. They can come in above or below expectations. You kind of want to protect yourself from any of those plausible outcomes. And the issue is having learned at the 60-40 portfolio is a great portfolio in a disinflationary environment and it is a terrible portfolio in an inflationary environment. And so in order to protect yourself, you want to be balanced to whether inflation and growth comes in better than you thought it did or comes in worse. And the way you do that is by balancing your assets relative to those different plausible outcomes. There's a lot of ways to do that. Frankly, I think the easiest thing is to just buy RPAR. It's an ETF. It's the risk parity ETF. Um, and I, you know, that, that'll, get you, that'll get you mostly done in a tax efficient liquid sort of form. Uh, and uh, you know, there's a couple of different ways to do it. You could buy the more volatile one, UPAR, or the less volatile one, RPAR, depending on your risk tolerance. That basically gets it done. There are other ways to do it that are out there as well um, that are uh, a construction of five to seven or eight different simple ETFs, which you could put together uh, and you know, create something that's pretty tax efficient and pretty well structured. Uh, any of those solutions are fine to get you well balanced. I think the key thing is get yourself prepared and balanced for an inflationary cycle. You because you don't know whether you're going to be in a disinflationary cycle or an inflationary cycle over time. Absolutely, and you know, coming to the the middle ground between alpha and beta, you know, kind of uh, what you would call the smart betas or you know the alternative risk premium. Um, how do you think about those in terms of a bound context? You know, alpha and beta do exist on a spectrum. So maybe for somebody, you know, who's trying to replicate a balanced allocation for them that, you know, it seems like some form of alpha, you know, to even get to a balanced allocation. But, you know, say you have a beta portfolio and, you know, you do have the ability to, you know, go find source alternatives. How durable do you think that alternatives are in, in combination with a set of betas? So things like momentum, carry, um, you know, value, volatility, risk premium. Do you think that that 
has a place in a balanced allocation? I think that it is, uh, if, if you look at the history of these various strategies, when you think about alpha, alpha is a zero sum idea. And I think that's a very important thing to think about, which means that the way that you generate positive returns is by taking it from others in the market and in a very important component of that and others not taking it from you. And so when you see strategies that are relatively simple strategies like uh, carry trading, trend following, et cetera, I think what you see with those strategies is that they often are identified as being a good idea by the market, uh, you know, by, by the, most, the more sophisticated folks in the market. Often then what will happen is that uh, someone, you know, they'll identify it, they'll talk about it, they'll sell a product related to it, they'll have it in their investment strategy, but slowly but surely over time, others will incorporate that same basic strategy into their trading. And over time, what I call is that there's, there's alpha decay. There's alpha decay in those strategies. And so what ends up happening is kind of everybody gets a little bit of that. And so your benefit from implementing those strategies starts to go down. I think it's important to recognize when you're trading from an alpha perspective, the best alpha traders are are investing incredible amounts of resources to identify new ways to generate positive returns relative to the market. And so it's not as easy as buy some trend following and it'll be okay because if it was that easy, why like then then everyone would do it and everyone does do it and and it's gone. Like that's the way that the cycle works. And so to generate real alpha, and it's really important to recognize that you have to compete with folks like, you know, the biggest hedge funds in the world who are spending literally billions of dollars and have tens of thousands of analysts who are sitting there richly understanding what's going on in the markets and putting that together in the most sophisticated portfolios with the most sophisticated trade execution out there in the world. And that is pretty hard to compete with um, from pretty much anyone's perspective. You know, to your point, I had the good fortune of... um of meeting Cliff Asnes. And he told me that when they started their momentum portfolio at Goldman, they were running a sharp ratio in excess of two. Um, and that strategy has gone from being one of the highest, you know, one of the best performing strategies on the street to something that's now considered a alternative risk premium because it's so well documented, so well understood. Right. And now you have a proliferation of machine learning algorithms that are basically just trying to optimize for this momentum <laughs> parameter. And they're all just trying to beat each other on this. So I, I I definitely agree with you, and I I understand that. Now, to get kind of a little bit more into what drives alpha, right? So um, I think that there are. Let Let's talk about this from two perspectives. I think that you know people we we live in hope, so everyone is going to go out and try to generate generate alpha. So I th- I think that that's probably going to happen. Um, but when you are trying to both construct an alpha for yourself, and you are also trying to evaluate prospective alpha in a manager. What I think there are two dimensions. There's a qualitative dimension and there's a quantitative dimension. And how do you think about those? Generating alpha is 
really comes down to what is your uh, what is your edge. You have to have edge in order to create that alpha persistently over time. You have to have persistent edge. And so when you think about um, when you think about whether a manager, a person, yourself can generate alpha, I think it's really important to think about what exactly is your edge in the market and can you very effectively articulate why you have an edge relative to anyone else who could be plausibly sitting in your seat. And so that, that edge is really uh, at, at the core of when I think about whether or not a particular manager or strategy or you know, type of thinking or approach has merit over time, it really comes down to that edge point. And you can think about that edge on a backward looking basis. You can like test, does that edge have, you know, does that, did that edge lead to an outcome that you, you know, would be happy with if you appropriately tested it out of sample back to time? which is important. Uh, and, and very often people will uh, suggest ways of thinking or investing uh, have edge that actually don't uh, when you test them. And so that's why the testing factor time is very important. But almost more important is carefully visualizing in the future what the likelihood is that that edge will be competed away uh, or that that edge will persist. And that's really the, the core thing you have to think about, just in the same way you gave the example, uh, you know, the Cliff Asnes example, where there was edge in the way that he was thinking about it back 20 years ago, but that edge slowly but surely deteriorates over time. And one of the most challenging things is when you see short-term outperformance of a particular approach due to randomness that is an edge. And that can be particularly confusing because you might attribute that to being a particular edge rather than appreciating that, let's say you had zero edge and you had a largely random portfolio. Of course, you're going to get certain things right. Of course, you're going to put together a few good months over time, just surely out of the randomness of the distribution that you experience. And so that's why it's important to recognize, to back test to contextualize what you know recent good returns might look like and to on a forward looking basis really understand whether you're likely to have that edge persist over time. Right, I think a powerful example of that is a very simple strategy where you buy where you buy dips over the last decade. Right? Um is there any particular reason that worked? Probably not, but did it work? Yes. So the I, th I think that this understanding of whom are you taking money from? Right? Is there maybe a, a player that has non-economic incentives that you're making money off, or you know, is there a mechanism which you believe is durable in creating alpha over a long period of time? And do you think that you know there is a likelihood that other people are going to find out and start exploiting the same thing? I, I think that that's really important, and I think that one of the unique places that you there there is a potential inefficiency is that, you know, markets, I think in their microstructure tend to be pretty efficient, right? So on a security by security basis tend to be pretty efficient. Um, but I think that the, the frontier really is that there might be macro inefficiencies. I think 
this is a really good kind of base. We've understood how the economy works. We've understood kind of um, how the cycle works. We've alluded to where we are and we have a good idea of portfolio construction. So I think it's time to get into some alpha views, right? The exciting stuff. So um, I think it's, it's, it's fairly clear that you think that we're in a high inflation period, right? Now, the question is, do you think that we're headed towards outright stagflation? Um, and what are your views on, you know, how real growth is going to develop relative to, non to inflation? So the point that we're in in the cycle is uh, we've been in an inflationary cycle for the last couple of years and seen that set of dynamics. And the point that we're in is the, the point in which the central bank, the Fed here, but also other central banks uh, to, a, to a lesser extent, are sort of catching up with their tightening in response to the rising uh, inflationary pressures. And so we're in a tightening period of an inflationary expansion. That's basically where we are. And we're in, frankly, a bit of an early part of the tightening period in an inflationary expansion. And that sort of point in time sets us up for an interesting set of uh, uh, of prospective alpha views, um, where in particular, the way in which inflationary dynamics are broken is typically through a rise in interest rates, which causes a decrease of credit. If we go back to that original framework, because it's always at the foundation of everything we, we say, so people can spend with either money or credit. Part of what a rising set of interest rates does is it starts to slow credit. And we're seeing that in cyclical sectors like housing. So that's part of the dynamic. But part of the dynamic to break the cycle, the, the price wage price cycle, is that you have to start to create a slowing of nominal spending. That's probably more than what just what the rise in interest rates is going to be able to do. And the way you're going to do that is by causing asset prices to decline. And so tightening monetary policy enough to start to cause asset prices to decline. And in the scheme of things, we're, you know, we've made some progress on that. Um, but let's not forget that, you know, bonds, bonds have fallen, a, you know, about as much as they've ever fallen in a six or 12 month period through time. But stocks really have not fallen hardly at all in that context. Like stocks today are higher than they were pre-COVID. Uh, they're up hundreds of percent, depending on exactly what you pick relative to the highs prior to the financial crisis. They're down like 20 or 25% from secular highs. Like no, stocks haven't moved that much. And what you're seeing is that because stocks haven't moved that much in the grand scheme of things, you haven't had much effect on nominal spending, which means you haven't really done the things necessary to break the inflationary dynamic. And so what does that mean in terms of alpha views? It means you're likely to experience worse stock returns. You have, basically the Fed has to deliver worse stock returns to achieve their outcomes. So if you believe that the Fed is credible, that they will attempt to slow down inflation from where it is today, which I think is, by and large credible, maybe they don't do it quite as perfectly as you think, then you've got to believe that stock prices are going to fall relative to where they are today, because that is the way that the, that's the lever the Fed has in order to accomplish this goal. 
That's it's it's just the mechanics of that in terms of how monetary policy works. So there are a couple of threads I want to pull pull at. So the first thing I think I want to want to want to start with is um, the Fed. So I think in past inflation cycles, based on our study of inflation cycles, what we've seen is typically to be able to quote unquote break the back of inflation, you've actually needed to see the Fed at least hike past nominal nominal uh, growth rates or somewhere in line with inflation, right? And based off that metric, you know, we, you know, Prometheus, we have inflation trend at roughly six and a half percent, which I know is significantly lower than the, than the current print on CPI. But I think that that's kind of where inflation trend is at. And you would basically, based on that metric, you would need to see a much higher Fed funds than it's currently priced. So we have what, about six and four, 480 priced on Fed funds terminal. So I guess my first question to you is, do you think that there is a path towards more tightening than we already have priced in? It's I think it's possible. Um, it uh, you you have to make sure that you're when you're thinking about that uh, you're appropriately contextualizing. There's quantitative tightening that is going to have an effect. Certainly, how big is that? You know, maybe a hundred basis points. It's you know, it's a, there's a lot of uncertainty here, which I think is an important thing to recognize. And so you have the the quantitative tightening that's adding a bit to it. You have uh, an economy that still has relatively high debt levels, um, longer durations than they used to have. So, you know, the reset of, of uh, interest expense is going to take a little longer, but high debt levels. And so how much tightening are you going to need in order to achieve your outcome? Uncertain. Maybe it's a little bit more than what's priced in. Maybe it's a little bit less than what's priced in, you know, assuming that it's held for a reasonable period of time. Like hard to say, feels like, like not a great ratio trade uh, in terms uh, on the bond market, whether you're talking twos or tens, like, you know, seems uh, uh, kind of in the ballpark of reasonable, maybe a little higher. I think the thing that doesn't make sense is looking at the pricing of bonds relative to the pricing of stocks, which if you look at why stocks have fallen so far, or if you decompose the decline in the stock market so far, what you see is that basically all the decline that you've experienced in the stock market so far this year has basically been a function of the rise in discount rates. So if you think about stocks, you can think about it's basically earnings discounted by an interest rate, by the, by the, uh, by the, you know, the prevailing interest rate. And basically what happens is that denominator has gone up enough to explain the totality of the move in prices. And so the earnings part of that, the projected earnings part of that really hasn't moved much. And that cannot be the case if we get the sort of economic contraction that's necessary to break the back of inflation. And so that is really where my mind goes when I'm thinking about what you're, what you're asking is rates themselves, you know, could go either way, maybe on the margin, I think will go higher, but like, you know, they, they could not go higher and it wouldn't surprise me uh, at this point, but stocks have got to fall relative to bonds. It's, there's there's no, no other way that we're going to get through this dynamic and achieve uh, the compression in, in inflation that's desirable to the, to the Fed. So uh, I'm on the same page as you when it comes to the relative of bonds versus stocks. I think that um, the, and I'm actually, 
on the same page as you when it comes to the outright on the stock side as well. So I, I think that we're, we're probably going to see, you know, what um, we had in our previous episode, uh, Mr. Blonde, we had him on and he, he called it uh, death by paper cuts, where you're going to have an analyst <laughs> community that just starts revising lower and lower and lower as they kind of, because the analyst community in equities for whatever reasons tend, tends to be extremely contemporaneous in, in their outlook, right? So they see conditions weakening and they start to revise lower. So we'll probably have, you know, kind of an inversion of the EPS curve over time. So I, I think that both on a relative basis and an outright basis, I, I'm on the same page as you when it comes to stocks. When it comes to bonds, um, on a relative basis, I'm on the same page. But when it comes to like actually the bond beta, so, you know, being on the long side of bonds, how do you think that that fits in? Because I know that you've done some work on on QT as well. And we had, you know, we had an exchange about that. So I'm very curious about how you're thinking about bonds just kind of going back to looking at history, right? What we needed kind of in the 70s, right, to form a durable bid for bonds was a peaking in interest rate and, you know, an, an eventual, you know, the initial stages of declines and you had um, you had depository institutions come in and in very large, you know, amounts. This time, I think we're in kind of a little bit of a different situation, right, where you have the monetary authority, which has been the biggest bid for treasuries. And, so far, you've actually had commercial banks offloading as many treasuries as they possibly can. So I'm wondering about, you know, from a buyer's and seller's perspective, how you're thinking about bonds prospectively catching a bid both in the short term and more structurally how you see that evolve. Yeah, first of all, I love, I love getting into the, the supply and demand of bonds back in the 70s. You know, that's, that's, um, that's what it takes to be a great macro investor is rolling up your sleeves and thinking about those circumstances and getting into it. Um, so I, I, a ton of appreciation for, uh, for you uh, giving, giving some thought at that level. Thank you, um, thank you. You're, you're welcome. The, I, I personally always enjoy when I open up some of your charts, they almost always go back into the 70s or the 60s or the 50s. And every time I am thankful that I'm looking at a chart that actually is giving the sort of perspective that I'd actually want as a, you know, that I actually want to see as an investor. Um, you know, I'm really glad that people, because I, I do very much have this in mind. We, you know, as you know, there's so many data limitations on actually creating these things that you have to find so many workarounds, make synthetics, you have to find all this stuff. And so I'm, it's, uh, it's much appreciated. Yeah, that, that hard work goes into much more insightful uh, research and perspective than uh, than not doing it. So Absolutely. Uh, the, the the hard work is is certainly appreciated, and I can tell you I I know firsthand what it takes to to put that together. So um, I, I every time I see one of those charts, I I think to myself how uh, how much effort it is taken to give the perspective that you're given. Um, turning to bond supply demand today, uh, which is what the core of your your question is. I think the main question is, when are we going to see the emergence of the rebalancing channel? That's how the Fed is often called it, the rebalancing channel between risky assets and bonds. And when will that come back to the market in a more serious way? I think one of the things that has been interesting to me, at least, is seeing kind of how disconnected the two markets have been, not, not just in the fact that you know, here's generally how the pricing is working. I'm saying at the level of like, you look at the intraday market action and you see things happen and the bond market doesn't move. 
and the stock market's moving meaningfully on incremental information, which highlights that there's a disconnect between those two markets. And so part of what's necessary in my mind to start to get the dynamics um, that where essentially the declining economic conditions start to flow through to bonds outperforming or even net rallying is you got to start to get people moving away from equities and into bonds uh, in, in that market. And until you get that, I, I hear you that I, I agree with you that I think there is a real question about um, about whether or not there is enough demand for bonds in an environment of the issuance that we're going to see on a forward-looking basis, plus the QT, plus lack, plus the yield curve being the way that it is, which is reducing investment by by people like the Japanese banks who used to ride the U.S. yield curve, or um, plus the dollar pressure on from global central banks feeding through to bond sales. It's not, it's not easy. I'd say it's not easy exactly where you could get enough demand for the number of bonds that are, that are being issued. And you start to see, you know, you're starting to see in the bond market, let's call it some, some, some shakes, some small uh, problems emerge. Like uh, obviously what's going on recently is, you know, tips are starting to sell off uh, in, in a, in a bit of a way that is not, you just kind of can't be consistent with the underlying fundamentals. You have this other thing in the UK, you're starting to get some cracks in the bond market, given the supply and demand picture. So I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good insight. Uh, and could you easily have, uh, a bit of, a bear steepening going on. I think that that's certainly a possibility on the long end. You could have a bear steepening going on, even as the Fed kind of nudges interest rates basically to what's priced in, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. So I hear you. And now in terms of the bond trade, like when, when it comes to the bond trade versus stock trade, right? Like I, I think that that's very much a, a growth expression, right? So you're, 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 when, you, when you net those two out, you're essentially betting on a future growth outcome. Um, what I would like to do is go to the other side, uh, which is, you know, the inflation expressions. So things like break even. So, you know, I, I think that as of today morning, you had a massive drop in like five year, five year inflation swaps and not really sure why that is. Maybe you have some insight on why that is. Um, but do you, there, there seems to have been this phenomena all year where, you know, break even markets and inflation markets, um, the forward looking ones keep repricing a mean reversion in inflation. Right. And, you know, given kind of your view on the structural factors, do you think that this is kind of the, the big one, that this is the opportunity that, you know, people are going to consistently keep losing money on being on the wrong side of this? Yeah, I think the inflation market and exactly what's priced in um, is, I, I think, unfortunately, when you start to look at things like five year, five year, your forward inflation. The main question is whether or not you think the Fed will do what it takes in order to achieve low and stable inflation as outlined by its mandate. And so I'm not, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, certainly one way to explain what's going on in the break-even market in the most recent um, uh, in the most recent period is that 
people are increasingly recognizing the Fed will do what it takes to achieve a long-term 2% mandate. Um, and, I, you know, others have highlighted, they've said, oh, well, maybe the Fed's going to accept 3% inflation or 4% inflation. I think you know, that's probably not what's going to happen. Um, and so that's kind of, we're seeing a repricing of that in the market, but what it will require is higher real yields, more economic pain. The real, the real thing that doesn't make sense and you know, it's not intended to, to, to harp on it is you're not gonna have an environment where inflation is durably moved to the 2% outcome when stocks are at the level of threat. Those two things cannot happen. It's plain and simple. Unless there's some totally unexpected supply side uh, dynamic that really undercuts inflation in general, you can't have those two things. And so my guess is most likely what you'd see is a com effectively a compression in those two prices, right? In the sense of either stocks have got to fall or breaking evens have to rise because the Fed is running more stimulative than people expected. And like that has to compress structurally because the two things, the way that they're priced right now are just inconsistent with each other. So how does that kind of fit in with, uh, you know, packaging these alpha views, right? So I, I know that you've talked about, you know, having long exposure to commodities, which probably like in your portfolio have a very similar structure to break-evens, right? So if I was just long pure break-evens um, relative to being long commodities, they'd be probably very similar. Yep. Um, and how do you kind of pair those two trades together? Because I know that you're, you're of the opinion that, you know, having commodity positions as an offset to this long short position um, is, a good, is, a, is a good way to structure it. Yeah, well, so from first starting with the, the principle of, uh, of how to think about constructing an alpha portfolio and, um, and also to essentially undermine everything that I've said so far is that even the best alpha traders are wrong a lot. When I say a lot, I mean six, an incredible ratio of trading is 60-40 in your favor when you're building an alpha portfolio. And so probably, most likely, 40% or more of the things that I just said are wrong and painfully wrong. Uh, and you know, we'll learn which, what's the 60 and what's the 40 down the line. But I think it is really important to recognize that that, that is the hit rate that, that anyone would have. And so given that context, that your hit rate 60-40, it's critical to build alpha portfolios that are much more balanced than what your, your single central case would imply. And so the, the way that you do that is what you do is you want to find a bunch of bets that you can put on the table that look to have roughly positive expected value, but may have different sensitivities to the sort of growth and inflation outcomes that might occur. I think the best alpha portfolios actually are constructed to be totally neutral to particular growth and inflation outcomes. Or if they're betting on growth and inflation outcomes, they're recognizing that that is a single bet that you're making in the market. And so in this context, I've talked a lot about, for instance, how stocks are gonna fall relative to bonds right? Or, you know, stocks relative to, to break even inflation. There are other, you know, that is all a 
I'm not saying it's entirely a, let's call it a bearish case or, or maybe even, you know, short assets in general relative to cash. Those are all uh, more tightening, weaker economic conditions, et cetera, bets on the table. And so part of what's on my mind is to then look around and say, fine, we'll take that bet, but that'll be like, that's like one bet, one singular bet. And I could easily be wrong, huh? And so you want to go around and look for what are all the other things that are either uncorrelated or negatively correlated to your bet that you think have reasonable expected value. So something like, uh, you know, expecting break-evens to expand might be a good component of that. Uh, it might be a good bet on that, uh, on that basis. Uh, commodities, I think there's a lot of uh, sort of convexity in commodities, given that it's arbitrage to relative to to physical markets that are starting to become increasingly constrained. So commodities might provide a nice portfolio bet. Things like uh, emerging market exchange rates might provide a positive, uh, a positive expected value bet that's negatively correlated to increased Fed tightening. And so that's part of the, the deal. Like a, a good, I'd say a very good portfolio in this environment is going to have like 60% of the risk on a bunch of stuff that is thinks that the you know the tightening is going to flow through and be worse than expected, um, and that assets are going to fall, and like forty percent well positioned. That if you're wrong about that sixty percent, you're going to do okay on the other side. Uh, and so that is um, when I when I talk about that, that's sort of the way to think about uh, building a, a good alpha portfolio in this sort of environment. And just for context for the listeners, when uh, when Bob says sixty percent hit ratios, my my eyes are popping because um, you know I, I think that's extremely high. You know, uh, I think that you have to to achieve a sixty percent hit ratio, you have to be some you know one of the most elite. You know, for for us at Prometheus this year up across our portfolio, forty eight different assets, we have a hit ratio of fifty four percent. You know, that's great. <laughs> and you're going to do at fifty four percent over forty assets if you can durably do that. Uh, presuming that you know your winners are a tad bigger than your losers, yeah. you're that you're going to deliver a great return stream, like a 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8, one ish yeah. in that ballpark, that ballpark return stream, and that's a fantastic outcome. And you are wrong so much, exactly <laughs> in that context. Exactly, and I I think that that's that's really important. And one more thing that I'd like to highlight when it comes to constructing alphas, right? And I think this is so important for people to understand. People start with betas as their as their base for thinking about, oh, if I'm if I have an alpha, I can improve a beta stream. So if I have a sharp ratio of 0.3 on the S&P, my alpha, you know, needs to have a, a sharp of one on the S&P. And I personally, I don't know about your view, Bob, I don't think that's necessarily true. Because I think that a, a true alpha, if if it's durable, even if it has a lower ratio, is much more value contributive to a set in the portfolio, as opposed to just saying, oh, I have, you know, a sharp ratio of one on the S&P, I need to take it to 1.5 for it to be a part of my portfolio. Right. Any, any alpha is beneficial to a portfolio. Uh, alpha is hard. And it, it really is true. Any alpha is, is beneficial. Give, I mean, assuming that it has, you know, non correlation that's below one, you would basically want it in your portfolio. And I think part of the thing that, uh, that some investors have gotten confused by is like, 
it's true, like stocks in the US in the last 12 years have experienced a sharp ratio that is, you know, not quite one, it's below one, but a sharp ratio that is equivalent to very good alpha sharp ratios, uh, particularly net of fees, but failing to recognize that the last 12 years in the US market context is the 99th percentile type outcome that has occurred in beta and that you're much more likely over time to experience you know, beta sharp ratios that are in the 0 0.2, 0 0.3 range if you look across countries and across time. And in that context, sharp ratios that are even relatively modest and are uncorrelated are quite beneficial uh, in that environment, particularly if you can find sharp ratios that are positioned that are more lowly correlated or, uh, or, you know, uh, or complementary to what your beta portfolio looks like. Fantastic. Um, Bob, as we start to wind down, are there kind of any concluding thoughts that you think that investors really have to have in mind before capital preservation and, you know, um, really surviving this environment and potentially even trying to thrive? I think the biggest lesson uh, that I can convey today is a lesson that really uh, I, I learned in the middle of the financial crisis, which was really my first stress test as an investor, which is that uh, you're facing an environment and a set of dynamics that you have never faced before. And you don't know from your personal experience how it works. And so the only way to gain perspective in that sort of dynamic is to go out there and find other circumstances that look more akin to what we're experiencing today. And that really means going and studying the history of inflationary cycles, inflationary tightenings, et cetera. I, I, can, I can speak uh, with honesty, like I went back a few months ago and cracked open a set of Volcker's lectures that he has in, in this book, Changing Fortunes, about how he navigated through this environment because I knew I didn't, I, I didn't know how this environment worked. And so I needed to understand that in order to understand what was likely to transpire. And so um, that's why we need you know, all those charts back to the 50s. We need to see the 70s. We need to understand that. And we need to recognize that there's a ton we don't know about what's going on and the heuristics that we've developed over the course, particularly of the post financial crisis period are going to be deeply flawed as we move forward. And so that, you know, that is a, a plug for humility and a plug for uh, rolling up your sleeves and doing the homework about uh, to understand environments that, uh, that are applicable to today. That's excellent advice. Uh, I'm just going to fully get behind that. Um, I think this is a really great place for us to wrap up. Um, Bob, before we sign off, is there somewhere where our listeners can find out more about you and more about Unlimited? For sure. Uh, the, uh, you, can, you can find my evolving uh, macro thoughts on uh, Twitter, uh, Bob E. Unlimited uh, on Twitter. 
Um, and if you want to learn more about what we're up to at Unlimited, you can check out uh, unlimitedfunds.com, which is also uh, linked from uh, my various profiles. So, uh, so definitely check that out if you have a chance. Bob, thank you again. This was so insightful. I'm sure people are going to love this. Great. Well, thank you for having me on. I think I, I, uh, I really appreciate uh, the way that you've, uh, you've structured this from the framework down to, the, to what's going on today. And, and hopefully uh, it's useful for folks as they're, as they're thinking about this unusual market environment. Absolutely. Take care, Bob. See you later.